Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are just cruising through the new year. This is definitely not the first episode we recorded in the new year as we've already referenced the new year in previous episodes. This is definitely still way into the new year. So (laughs) happy old new year, Rob. Happy new year. (laughs) So last week we spent time going through Revelation 13. You cannot look at Revelation 13 without looking at the background of Daniel chapter 7, which has these four beasts. We talked about how Daniel chapter 7 is paralleling what's happening in Daniel chapter 2. So those passages need to be read together. And we talked about just the way the book of Daniel is laid out with language and genre and those sorts of things. Are there things that we want to revisit quickly before we head back into the world of Revelation 13? Well, Revelation 13 is one of the critical passages in the book. This is the beast, which is often associated with the Antichrist and popular dispensationalism. It's the revived Roman Empire, some end times empire. So it has all that stuff in it. This this is a hugely significant chapter. So maybe the best thing to do actually to frame it within the context of the book of Revelation. Okay. Revelation chapter 11, we've got these two witnesses. They go out and prophesy. They do their ministry, leads to the conversion of the nations by their faithful, sacrificial dying for the sake of the kingdom of God. In the middle of that description of them, uh, chapter 11, verse 7, it says, a beast comes up out of the abyss, makes war with them and kills them uh, and overcomes them, right? And, And kills them. What we have then in chapter 12 through 14, verse 5, 12, 13, and beginning of 14, is an expansion of what this war is all about. And we find out in chapter 12, it's the war that the dragon, Satan himself, has been waging against the people of God since the beginning of time. Chapter 12 then ended with, verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman, which is the people of God, went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then 1218, which in many of your translations, if you're listening English Bibles, might be chapter 13, verse 1. It says, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. So what we find out then is the war against the two witnesses is what the dragon's been waging against God's people from the beginning of time. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? This enmity between the serpent Mm -hmm. and the woman and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that the dragon has been kicked out of heaven. He's really angry. And he's off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And now we find out in chapter 13 how he does his work, how he does his bidding. And that is he empowers two beasts to do the work for him. And so that's what he's standing on the sand of the seashore. The first beast in verse one is going to come up out of the sea. And then in verse 11, we're going to have a beast coming up out of the earth. Remember the devil standing on the sand of the seashore so he can welcome them both as he as he straddles the land and the sea. And so that, that's the context here. So this is really, really significant. So one of the things we've spent so much time on in Revelation is looking at numbers and, and the amount of time something is used or the actual number itself. So there's two ways of looking at numbers. In Daniel, so we are jumping to a different book, obviously yeah. different testament, but it is apocalyptic. So my question would be the fact that there's four beasts in Daniel should we carry over that same type of symbolic, you know, symbolism and significance about create the, you know, four representing the creation and the world? Would that, would that be fair to look at? I think it is. So as we get into Revelation chapter 13 tonight, what we're going to see is that John's totally building off the imagery of the four beasts in Daniel chapter seven. What most people think of the four beasts in Daniel chapter seven is, oh, well, the first one represents maybe Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome or Babylon, Medes, Persians, and Greece. Yeah, Greeks. Uh-huh. D- different. 
we can identify because remember in Daniel chapter two, it says, and you, O king, are the head of gold. Hmm. So the first part of the statue. No one argues on the first yeah, kingdom yeah, because he yeah, tells it, us it's, it's, it's Babylon. And no. All right. So the four beasts of Daniel chapter seven and the statue and the four images in the, in the statue, the four parts of the statue in Daniel chapter two are explicitly identified with a particular kingdom. Mm -hmm. But does it also represent the four parts of it, the four beasts or the four parts of the statue? The fact that it's four is a number four completion totality regarding the creation. I think it does. I think it is. Either way, it doesn't matter, but I, I think it still helps because Revelation 13 is going to be explicit because these four beasts are combined into one in Revelation chapter 13. And the fact that they are all combined into one in Revelation 13, it's just showing that it's just representative of all empires, right? So it, yeah. it, like yeah. trying to pinpoint and do the whole national treasure thing when you're, when you're figuring out the roadmap. It's a moot point. If, if that's the goal, you're missing the point that John is trying to make. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's no question at all that John's combined the four beasts of Daniel chapter seven into one beast. As we, I think we discussed as a few episodes back, maybe our last episode, and that is because in this one beast in Revelation 13, it is all empires in history combined mm -hmm. together, not just Rome. Uh, or not just a future Rome, but all of the above. And then even though it is Rome, we would look yes. at all the hints and it is Rome. We look at the mark of the beast. It's Nero, all that. But it doesn't mean it's merely Rome. It's just, that's indicative of the evil empires of the world. I think in the last episode, we probably read through all of chapter 13, but we'll just kind of go verse by verse to pick out some points. So 13 verse one. And it reads, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Mm -hmm. So is there a connection between the sea and the abyss that we saw in chapter 11? Yeah, there's, there's no question that they're, they're probably synonymous. In chapter 13, verse one, we have a beast coming up out of the sea. In chapter 11, verse seven, he saw a beast coming up out of the abyss. And so they're probably synonymous. Yeah. And it, later on, the way Revelation ends in 21, when you get yeah. to New Jerusalem, there's no more sea. Right. And, and this is something where the concept of sea, if we were to look at the just the biblical theology of sea or just the ancient Near Eastern idea of sea, there's a vast group of meanings, but it's usually not a good thing, right? Not typically. The sea is... Obviously, in the book of Genesis, the sea is anti-creation. It's chaos. The mm -hmm. ancient Near Eastern chaos monsters and the chaos imagery. The sea has to be tamed. The sea monsters are in the sea and it has to be tamed. In the book of Genesis, he separates the water from, from waters above mm -hmm. and below to create the sky. Then he separates the waters from side to side to create the land. That's this creation motif of cosmic evil and chaos having to be subdued. So without question, then you have... The idea then that the sea monster represents evil kingdoms and who persecute God's people. So yeah, it's it's widely believed to be part of this chaos and destruction. So in 13.1, it also describes the beast as having 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and on its head were blasphemous names. So this is pulling us back to dragon type language, right? That we saw in yeah. chapter 12. Yeah, that's right. Remember the dragon has seven heads and 10 horns. Mm -hmm. Whereas the beast has uh, 10 horns and seven heads. Mm -hmm. So the, the beast is dragon-like. Now, this is really important for John's readers to understand and for us to understand. We look at this and go, okay, it's obvious this is a beast. It's obviously evil. It's empowered by the dragon. No problem. But John's readers, this was a problem. What John's trying to say is, you guys are being seduced by this. You guys are being deceived by this guy. Let me tell you what he's really like. And what he's really like, and obviously it's Imperial Rome, the empire, what he's really like is he's like the dragon. 
Mm. That's what he's like. And you need to understand this. And so I think that's really significant for us to make that connection of what we think it means. Oh, it's so obviously evil with what John's readers were confused with and why John's writing it this way. It's like, yeah, I'm trying to expose something for you guys here. You need to understand this. It's also interesting. We've talked about how Revelation is setting up this parody of the real God yes. receiving worship versus the false God receiving worship. Right. And so while you have in chapters four and five, the lamb coming together with the one seated on the throne, it's like the lamb is like the one seated on the throne in that he gets to share his worship and he gets to share his throne and these sorts of things yeah. in the same way you have this beast being able to come and be with the dragon and he has similar characteristics. So this is one of those, when I read this story, this is one of those lines of demarcation where it's kind of funneling, you know, the different sides of the equations out. Yeah. 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 And we'll see that as we proceed through this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Now it's talking about horns. There's a lot of these things. Mm. And so this is also similar to when we look at the sea or water language in ancient Near Eastern literature, horns are significant in the Bible and outside of the Bible as well, yeah. right? In terms of like what they're trying to yeah. uh, portray. Because in our modern context, this is just weird. It's like, is this a drum and bugle corps with a bunch of trumpets? Like, <laughs> what are these horns that we're thinking of? Yeah. There's actually ancient artwork has Moses depicted with horns. Which is really interesting because you think really? of horns being on on the devil, right? The devil has yeah, horns. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, ancient artwork has Moses depicted with horns because horns are a symbol of power. That's all it is. So well, it's it like you you would you would yeah. look at the Marvel Avengers series and Loki, who's Thor's oh, yeah. brother, right. and what does he have on his helmet? He has these two horns coming up, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, and and he's the bad one, but it doesn't yes. necessarily convey uh, evil. Of course, <laughs> it's a symbol of power, is what it yes. is. Yeah. So the the beast has ten horns which correlates with the 10 horns of Daniel's fourth beast. Remember, so the mm-hmm. fourth beast had 10 horns and then had this one horn that was really bad and worse than all the others. So uh, the beast, of course, has diadems or crowns uh, uh, on his horns, which are also a symbol of power. The dragon wears, of course, the diadems on his heads. So the, the diadems uh, and the fact that they're 10 in number mm-hmm. also convey his blasphemous claims to royalty. He's, he's the king. He's the ruler. He's the one in power. And the laurel wreath, which aren't really a crown, it's more of a wreath, was a symbol of military victory. There's ancient coins that have been discovered. And almost all of them that have the emperor on it, they almost always have a laurel wreath on the head of the emperor. And that laurel wreath is a symbol of victory. So the dragon has seven diadems for, or laurel wreaths, whereas the beast has 10. So that's the significance here. It has this blasphemous claim to authority. Yeah, it also has a blasphemous name that we read about. Yeah, actually, it has blasphemous names because each of its heads has blasphemous names. That's hmm. so, uh, not a not a a name. But again, it's probably this self-deifying intention that I am the divine, I am the Lord, I'm the God. And so you see in chapter sixteen, you see that those who refuse to repent and they blaspheme the name of God. Oh. In verse two, we see that the dragon empowers the beast. Let's go ahead and read, uh, it says, read, go ahead and read it. We didn't yeah, read yeah. yeah. It says, right. and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So now this becomes one of the keys to understanding the narrative. And that is the means by which Satan wages his war against the people of God. Remember, so he's, he's waging war against the offspring of the woman, chapter 12, verse 17. And the means by which he does it is to empower these beasts. There's two beasts. I like to think of thing one and thing two from Dr. Seuss, but <laughs> I don't think that quite works. In the temptation of Jesus, Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world I give you mm-hmm. if you bow down and worship me. Well, Satan can't give them the kingdoms of the world unless he has power or authority over mm-hmm. them. And he does. With, throughout the New Testament, of course, he 
will not forever, as First Corinthians 15 says, Christ must reign until he yep. takes all power and authority for himself. But right now, the devil has the power and authority over the nations. And what he does is he empowers them to do his work, as we're going to see in this chapter, in this passage. He empowers them to do the work of persecuting God's people. Hmm. You also have the beasts that are like a leopard, a bear, a lion. This is totally connecting to Daniel's four yeah. beasts. Yeah. If you look at the four beasts in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter seven, it says the first beast was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. Verse five, the second beast uh, was like a bear. And the th- verse six, the third beast was like a leopard. So the three aspects of a lion, a leopard, and a bear are all referred to here in Revelation chapter 13 and re- referring to this particular beast. And what's significant again to remember is that the four beasts in Daniel 7 are specifically or explicitly said to be four kings. In Daniel 7 verse 17, it says, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who arise from the earth. So John's combining the four beasts of Daniel 7 into one beast, and that's what's like a lion, like a leopard, like a bear. Okay. As John continues in in verse 3 on his description of the beasts, I'll read verse 3 now. It says, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. So it says, seems to have a mortal wound, Mm, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. It appeared to, and we can't ignore that. It wasn't that it actually had a mortal wound and actually died. It just seemed to. So it just is, it's an apparent type killing, right? No, it's an actual killing. Looking at the translations for just a second, the New American Standard says, as if it had been slain. Okay. The ESV says, seemed to have a mortal wound. I think, I'm not yeah. sure if that's what you read, for, yep, read, yep. read from. The Net Bible says, appeared to have been killed. The okay. NIV says, seemed to have had a fatal wound. The New King James, as if it had been mortally wounded. The New Living Translation seemed wounded beyond recovery, and the New Revised Standard says seemed to have received a death blow. The answer is it was actually killed because it's parodying the lamb. Who, so then, who looked as if he had been slain. Which exactly. He uh-huh. exactly. So in Revelation okay. chapter 5, John hears about a uh-huh. lion from the tribe of Judah who has overcome, and I looked and I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. It's the exact same expression. Now, the reason why in chapter five, it says as if it had been slain was because, well, the lamb was standing. And mm-hmm. so it looks like it had been killed, but it's, it's alive. And of course, Jesus was dead and now he's alive. So the point of the passage here then is to parody that. And I was, this beast is imitating Christ. Want you to think that he's Christ. So he actually was killed. And the reason why the language as if it had been slain is because that's the language that, that was used of the lamb earlier. And if you just keep reading it, we're going to find out that this beast actually was killed. Just go down to verse 12. It refers to the, the second beast. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It's a fatal hmm. wound. Okay. You know, verse 14, it says at the end of verse 14, it says the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. He was dead and now he's alive again. It might not be literally. It's just simply a describing this particular beast in a way that parodies Christ. And if you look at the descriptions of the beast and Jesus, the parody between the beast and Jesus are are explicit. So they both have as if they were slain. They both rise to a new life. They both have the names of their followers on their foreheads. And the people follow the beast who was slain in chapter 13, verse 3, but they reject Christ who was slain in chapter 13, verse 8. The beast has horns, In fact, the second beast has two horns like a lamb. Of course, Jesus has seven horns in chapter 5, verse 6. They both received universal worship. The blasphemous names of the beast contrast, interestingly, the unknown name of the lamb. So in Revelation Mm -hmm. 19, it says Jesus has a name which no one knows. 
Uh, and then it says, and then he has a name, the King of Kings and the, and the Lord of Lords. There's no question at all that this beast is being described in a way that wants you to think that it's Jesus, but it's not actually Jesus. And again, remember, as we read this, we're like, okay, this is so obvious. The beast is bad. He's evil. He's empowered by the dragon. It's not a question. But for John's readers, they were the ones being deceived. And again, we'll ask, I'm sure we'll ask this by the time we get done tonight. And that is, have we been deceived also? Mm. It's so easy for us to go, oh, this is so obvious. We'll never be deceived. But maybe we also are actually not much better than they were being deceived because we're thinking we're looking this way when actually the answer is over there. So one of the things that we're taught to do especially, you know, popularly is uh, read Revelation and try to figure out what it's saying, right? And from a dispensational standpoint, it's decoding everything. It's trying to figure yeah, out yeah, okay, what yeah. is this then? So even though if we're taking the same logic, we know that the events of chapter four and Jesus, you know, the lamb appearing as if he had been saying, okay, we know that that's resurrection, the resurrected Jesus by means right. of that, that is why he could break these seals and he's worthy to open them and ransom people from tribe, tongues, and nation. That's talking about a literal thing. So if I'm looking at this now and saying, okay, the beast is the copycat. So when did he have this moment when he died? Is that just the wrong question to ask or, no. you know, okay. It's not the wrong question. I wasn't going to get into it in too much detail, but there's certainly a, it's called Nero Redivivus. Uh, there Whoa. was a tradition. God bless you. <laughs> that, yeah. That <laughs> Nero, there's several legends out there. Nero commits suicide in 68. Well, there was a tradition that Nero wasn't actually dead, but he was actually off in Parthia, Iran. And he was going to come back and lead an army and overtake Rome. Hmm. And there were actually, I think, two or three imposters that came along at various times in the Roman Empire, like one early on, and I didn't want to say maybe 70, 68, 69, 70. I have to look, I have to look up the details. Uh, and another one later on in the early 80s or mid 80s, if I'm not mistaken. And one of them actually looked like Nero, and they mm. both got away with it for a short, a, a little while, actually claiming to be Nero. There's no question that Revelation that the 666 is Nero. Mm -hmm. uh, and Baucom has, a, I think, a really good work on this where I think he, he builds the case that John's building on the idea of Nero having come back, leading a Parthian army from the east uh, to capture and to conquer Rome. Interesting. Okay. So, th so yeah. there's that also background information that we're just not privy to. Yeah. And if, and if John's writing this in the late 80s or 90s, people were going to know about this. So, yeah, because they've had two imposters that have both been killed. One that was an imposter that lasted, I think, months, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So it sounds like a Disney flick or something like that. Yeah. Taking over the king. Anyway, it's like it's like the evil parent trap. OK, come on. That was funny. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Verses four through six, then we start actually hearing about this blasphemy from the beast. Yeah. Do you want me to read that? Yeah, uh, go ahead and please. Let's go ahead and read it again. And they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beasts and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 
It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Yeah. So here we go. So the nations cry out, who is like the beast and who's able to wage war with him, which is a blasphemous claim because it's actually usurping an expression applied to God. Mm. So in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18, mm -hmm. it says to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare him? And now you're applying that to the beast. So this beast has blasphemous claims also. Now, John then specifies that the beast blasphemies, well, his name and his, of course, is God and his dwelling place. There's two things that he blasphemes, his name and his dwelling place. Now, almost all English translations, if I'm not mistaken, all of them do, but let me see the New American Standard, the ESV, the Net Bible, the New Living Translation, and the New Revised Standard Version, all insert the, the words that is. Mm -hmm. The beast blasphemes his name and his dwelling place. That is those who dwell in heaven. So the dwelling place is explicitly identified as the people of God. And that goes mm -hmm. along with what we've discussed a little bit before. And that is throughout the New Testament, the temple has become personified. Jesus, of course, says, I am the temple of God, or destroy this temple in three days, or raise it up. And John says the temple he was speaking of was his body. We have explicit statements from Paul several times, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 3. You are the temple of the living God, Ephesians chapter 2. This temple imagery is applied to either Jesus or the people of God. Chapter 11, which we didn't spend a lot of time on, verses 1 and 2, John's going to measure the, the temple and the altar and the worshipers. And that's a description of God's people. So we have this imagery of God's people being the temple, and it's explicit here. The beast blasphemes God and his dwelling place, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So mm. I think that's really significant here. So who are those? And is it just the people who we saw ah. in chapters four to five or those beings who were around the throne worshiping day and night, never ceasing to say things? So this is where we have to understand the nature of the language and what John's trying to do. There's a sense where there's a dualistic, not a binary way of thinking because it's, it's more complex than that. There's a dualistic way of thinking for John. There's the dragon and the beast and the false mm -hmm. prophet. There's the father, the son, and the spirit. There are the followers of the lamb, and there's the followers of the beast. The followers of the beast have 666 on their forehead, which is the name of the beast. The followers of the lamb have the name of the father and the mm -hmm. name of Christ. You have this clear distinction between the people of God and the nations. And we've discussed the fact that tribe, tongue, people, and nation, this fourfold description of the mm -hmm. nations of the world. We come from that. And as the people of God come from that, from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, you have made them. But for the most part, that's an expression that describes the people of the world, not including God's people. Well, the most explicit way of referring to people of the world, not including God's people, is to refer to them as those who inhabit the earth. Actually, one word in Greek, earth dwellers, so it might be a way of translating it. And that phrase, those who inhabit the earth, is always used, always to refer to the people of the world, not including the followers of the Lamb, or not including God's people, the, the people of God. So in chapter 3, you have the hour of testing comes on, those who dwell on the earth. In chapter 6, he's going to when you're going to avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth or those who inhabit the earth. Verse chapter 8, you know, woe, woe, woe to those who inhabit the earth. Every occurrence of this expression is to refer to the people of the world, not including God's people. So then how do you refer to God's people then? And the answer is they're heaven dwellers. Mm. The, the expression of those who dwell in heaven is John's way of referring to the people of God. It doesn't indicate where they're located as much as it is to whom who do they, they give allegiance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah.
Okay. So it's an identity. It's not spatial or location, right? It's identity. The whole biblical story is to whom do you give allegiance, right? Who is your mm-hmm. Lord? Mm-hmm. You know, how do how does a person become a Christian by saying Jesus is Lord? I'm, by, mm-hmm. I'm obviously meaning it by, by dedicating to the fact that I have lived my life as if such and such was Lord, money was Lord, power was Lord, myself was Lord, other gods were Lord, whatever, you know, sex was Lord, my, my family, whatever it is. And I recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's mm. to whom do you give your allegiance? And to yeah. those who give their allegiance to the lamb are those who dwell in heaven. Okay. So yeah. if those who dwell in heaven are the Christians, the people or people of God, then does this mean that the people of God are the focus of the beast's blasphemies? And those, those are the people, and this yes. is what John's trying to say. Those are the people who he's blaspheming. Yes, exactly. So again, we have this popular conception of the beast as some political ruler mm-hmm. who's going to attack Israel and make a treaty with them and then break it in the middle of that treaty and, you know, and bring on Armageddon. And, and, you know, he's maybe the leader of the EU or the leader of the United Nations or some revived Roman empire some political Nero-like figure. And John's like, look, he's blaspheming God's people. He's, he's invading the church. He's invading. He's trying to deceive you. He's waging war on you, on God's people. So that's, it's extremely significant to understand. We think that the Antichrist beast, whatever it is, I don't know if we should merge the two or not, is going to make war against Israel. And John's like, the beast is making war against the church. What are mm-hmm. you talking about? Mm-hmm. And we'll see that in the, in, the ne- in the next verse. Yeah. And even there, I mean, this, this goes into the popular idea that it's Israel who needs to be protected because there's yeah. special promises and blessings that go to them. This is where we would recall to Genesis 12 or even as the, the yeah. covenant continues in 15 and 17, it's ratified or whatever you want to call it, that God will bless those it's it's improperly quoted because it's often often quoted as God blesses those who bless Israel and curses right. those who bless, curses Israel, which is amazing because Israel is two generations away. Mm-hmm. It's those who bless Abraham and his seed are the ones who are cursed or blessed. Yeah, right. And so I did a live stream, of course, if you're listening to this some sometime later on in the fall of 2023, talking about the war on Israel and Gaza and live stream number 12. I specifically looked at this theological issue of, well, who is Israel and what does the Bible say about this? And we kind of addressed that particular point there. And of course, the seed, you know, Abraham and your seed, or in some translations say descendants, but it's the same word, right? Depending mm-hmm. on how you translate it. Uh, that seed in Galatians 3 is Jesus. Yeah. Is, is, that seed is Christ. It explicitly says that in, J- in uh, Galatians 3, verse 16. Uh, and one of the things I asked in that discussion then was, why? did God make this promise to Abraham? Why did God say uh, that I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you? And why did he give him this promise of, of land? Uh, and the answer is, it kind of goes back to the whole narrative of the book of Genesis. Genesis begins with Adam and Eve being made to bear God's image. They're going to make God known to the nations. They're going to be a, a one and unified and a unity and God would dwell among them uh, and it would be great. And then of course they decide to choose wisdom for themselves. We're not going to follow the Lord's uh, bidding. We're going to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. You know, who is your Lord type of thing. Uh, and so then when you get to Genesis 12, you're like, okay, here's the answer. The solution's going to be, I'm going to call Abraham. He'll be the seed of the woman through whom I'm going to bless the nations. And I'll, I'll bring fulfillment of my covenant promises so I can restore my presence to the entirety of creation. And Abraham and his descendants will make me known. 
And so the idea was that God made this promise to Abraham and, and his descendants because God would dwell among them, hence the land. This mm -hmm. is where I'm going to dwell. And they would be the people among whom God would dwell. Ultimately, of course, we keep reading the Old Testament we're like, well, they keep failing. It's like Abraham doesn't actually quite do it. And it's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not Joseph. And who is it going to be? Oh, maybe it's David. Nope, not David. Oh, maybe it's Solomon. Oh, it's definitely Solomon. Because remember, even Solomon chooses wisdom. Ah, that's what I'll choose wisdom from you, God. Mm -hmm. It's like, but Solomon fails because he ends up with marriages and women and horses and chariots and gold. And so it's like, that's exactly what he was not supposed to do. And ultimately, when we get to the New Testament, and the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16 explicitly says so. Those who believe, in fact, are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Uh, Galatians 3 says, you know, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And so Jesus is therefore God made known. And as God himself, he's also the temple, meaning he's the, the dwelling place of God made known. And then through him, the people of God are then filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore we become the temple, which means the place of God's presence is now us, and the people of God are then sent to the nations to proclaim the gospel. We become the people through whom God is going to be made known. It was supposed to be Abraham, and ultimately is fulfilled by Jesus, and we become the people through whom God made known, and that's why I titled my book, These Brothers of Mine, because I think what you see in Matthew 25 is the fulfillment of the promise to, in Genesis 12, 1, 2, 3, that I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. Jesus' answer is, whenever you did this to the least of these brothers of mine, you did so to me. Like, oh, caring for God's people is caring for Jesus. That, I think mm. that's the significance of all that. And so taking that all into context, you're reading Revelation 13, 6, where it's talking about the, you know, blaspheming the, you know, the heaven dwellers and you're saying, yeah. okay, the beast, they're, they're focused on cursing the followers of Jesus. Then, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Verse seven says also it was allowed the beast to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So there's a war happening, but it's not this geopolitical war this is happening against the people of god and this is very explicit right, so chapter 13 verse 7 and chapter 11 verse 7 remember I, what i said before was mm -hmm. chapters 12 and 13 in the beginning of 14 are expanding on this war against the two witnesses and in chapter 11 verse 7 the beast comes up out of the abyss makes war with them and conquers them. Chapter 13, verse 7, you, you have almost the exact same expression. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation was given to him. And what you see in both those verses then is reference to the beast, reference to making war, reference to conquering. It's mm -hmm. There's no question that chapter 13, verse 7 is expanding and giving us information on what this war is all about. And the answer is, oh, this beast who makes war against God's people, uh, he's the one that's empowered by the dragon. And so it, it, there's no question at all. The idea, and again, the idea that this is about some political ruler who invades Israel in a military conquest is deception. It's, mm -hmm. it's causing us to look over here when the battle's over there. And we're, what we're doing is we're looking over here to the, to the battlefields of, you know, on CNN or Fox News or wherever you get your newscast to find out when the war is taking place in the Middle East. And, and people are going crazy, you know, as we record this at the beginning of 2024, because there's war going on in Gaza, and, oh, this must be it. It's a prelude to the end times. And the answer is, no, the war's against God's people. And, mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, I think 
I think we're losing that war. Now, let me ask you a question. We spent a lot of time in chapters two and three and in chapter, is it in chapter one? Talking about overcoming, Nikaio, yeah. overcome, conquer. It's the same word, depending on your translation. Yeah. But here we have this, yes. the oh. beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to overcome, to conquer, to Nikaio yeah. them. So what does that look like? Because the, 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 during the letters, every one of those seven letters ends with the idea to say, overcome, conquer Nikaio, just as I overcame. And, right. and that's the, that's the imperative that is given to the, the churches. Yeah. So uh, I've said before, and I wrote in my book, Follow the Lamb, I think chapter two, it might even be that the most important word or one of the most important words in the book of Revelation is this word overcome. Uh, and in that book, I listed all the times where it occurs because you can't always tell in your English Bibles mm -hmm. because you're right. It, it can be translated as overcome or conquer. I think the King mm -hmm. James it says prevaileth in one case there. And in the context depends, you know, how you translate it. So the English Bibles don't necessarily translate it the same way every single time. And as you watch that, you first thing that you notice is that each of the seven churches are told to the one who overcomes, I'll give the right to you from the tree of life. The one who overcomes, I'll, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Right? There's these promises to the overcomers. And one of the questions that we have to ask as we read the book of Revelation is, well, what is it that we're overcome? What is it that we're overcoming? And what does overcoming look like? Well, what we found out, actually, the first significance was in chapter five, where it says, behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome. Mm -hmm. Jesus has overcome. And then John looked and he saw a lamb standing as if slain. And the answer is, that's how Jesus overcame. He overcame as the lion because he was the lamb. Mm. And then the next time that's significant is in chapter 12 where the dragon's thrown out of, out of heaven after the war. And then it says in chapter 12, verse 11, it says, they overcame him because of mm -hmm. the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Ah, the blood of the lamb is what brings us redemption, brings us life and restoration. The word of their testimony, what we continue to proclaim regarding the lamb and his blood, and the fact that in proclaiming it, it will often cost us our life. Therefore, we did not love our life even when faced with death. Now we find out, oh, wait a minute, the beast overcomes us. And some of us might, you might go back and go, I thought, you know, Matthew 16, I think it's Matthew 16, or, the gates of hell will not prevail against mm -hmm. the church. And the answer is, yeah, it won't overcome the church, but it's going to do everything it can to make it, it's going to make a really good effort at it. It doesn't overcome the church because by inflicting death upon us, you're only bringing about our resurrection. You're only, you're only bringing us into the, the eternal provision. And so I think that's really significant. So the first thing that we realized then that what overcoming um, consists of is it consists of overcoming the persecution, suffering, and even imprisonment and death brought about by the beast who's waging war against us. That's what we have to overcome. Now, there's going to be something else that we have to overcome, and we'll save that for chapter 17 and 18 of our study. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. Going back to this, though, because I, you know, you might read in chapter or in, in verse seven about how he conquered them, the beast conquered the saints. And it almost sounds like, you know, even in a, in a, in a military way, if you conquer a country in Rome, it, you then get, you lay claim to that and the spoils mm -hmm. go to the victors. And now that's just my land. This is not what it, it's not saying that 
the beast made war on the saints and conquered them in the way that now he is able to claim them for himself. No, he's, no, he, he's overcoming them, but they're actually ultimately the ones who are overcoming him by being conquered. And that's what chapter 11 is about, right? The two mm-hmm. witnesses, the beast mm-hmm. comes up out of the abyss, makes war with them and overcomes them and kills them. Yes. But then a few verses later, they write, they hear a voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud. The two witnesses are the ones who are vindicated or proven to be the victors, even though they were actually the ones who were killed because by their death is the means through which they are rise again and are, are glorified. Just like Jesus was the lion by being the lamb that was slain. All right, Rob, tell me if this is a hot cake, heretical take or hot take. Obi-Wan Kenobi being struck down by Darth Vader and the Death Star. Strike me down, Darth, and I'll become more powerful than you could imagine. And, oh. and he just let, so it, it, come on, like there's shadows of the gospel in there, right? Over Allowing the enemy of the evil empire to overcome you and you'll become more powerful than he could even imagine. Is that, is that heretical? I have never thought of that, but uh, I, me neither till this. Do moment. it, do <laughs> it. Me and my son watched that yesterday and I'm is the it? whole time he wanted to watch it for the first time. And I'm just like, man, the whole time I just wanted to be, this movie is so awful. George Lucas ruined star Wars. But anyway, <laughs> He yeah. got it right in 1977. Okay. Well, I'm not sure oh, come on. if that was a Christian twist on it or not, or if maybe that was a beast-like twist. But me, me not like me, me claiming that George Lucas ruined Star Wars. No, the, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Was he, was he being Christological or was he being like the beast? No. As he, if he was Darth... slain who came back to life, had a fatal wound and, and was healed, right? Yeah. Well, he, we could he, say after watching the, the third episode, it, it Anakin Skywalker is kind of like, you know, he, he, they thought he was dead. He was going to burn up yeah, in the lava. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, he's, he's the one who they, they thought he's the was beast. dead. Yeah, yeah. He's That's, the beast, right? Yeah. Well, him, him surviving that is pretty, it's like, <laughs> sir, no, no, that's not yeah, going to work. Right. All right. Verses nine and 10 read, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then it says, if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance of and faith of the saints. So this is kind of hearkening back to, we get this bookend in the beginning that says, hey, the saints are going to be conquered. And now it's like, hey, guess what, guys? This is just what needs to happen, right? Yeah. Notice that the description of the beast ends with an exhortation to the people of God. If anyone has mm-hmm. ears to hear is the way Jesus finishes his parables or begins his parables, right? If anyone has ears to hear, it's an exhortation to God's people. And why would you have an exhortation to God's people if the beast is some political ruler that the nations, you know, we all know what it is. Mm -hmm. There's no way I'm getting the mark of the beast on me because, you know, I'm not getting that computer chip in my shoulder or my forehead or my right hand. Why would there be an exhortation to the people of God if that's the case? The answer is because that's the threat. The danger is that God's people succumb to the beast. Why? Well, we're going to find out one reason here, and that is so that we don't get persecuted. We, we, don't get, we don't get killed. We're going to go ahead and give in so that I and compromise so that we don't get killed. And that's obviously what's going to happen in the description of the, of the second beast. Hmm. Which is also, once again, Matthew 24 and 25 language, all mm-hmm. of the discourse. Don't worry about protecting the temple. Just, just flee. At different contexts, but it's just yeah. interesting how the call for God's people is to not defend anything anymore. It'd be like the lamb and, and become slain. Verse 10 says, if you're to be captive, you're taken captive, going to captivity. If, if they kill you, you know what we just talked about. This is so significant. Yeah. Now there's two ways to understand it. And the, and the, the, the translations are going to differ on this a little bit. Okay. Uh, one way to understand it is if anyone wants to go into captivity, into captivity, you're going to go. I don't know. It's, 
if you are going to be arrested, you're going to be arrested. Again, he's speaking to the church. Mm-hmm. The second part then is, and if you're going to be killed by the sword, you're going to be killed by the sword. That's just the way it is. Don't worry about it because remember chapter chapter 11, you're going to be resurrected. This is the good news. Your body might lie on the street for three and a half days, but a mm-hmm. breath of life from God's going to come into us. They're going to stand on your feet. We're going, to, we're going to be good. A second way of understanding it would be, well, if you're going into captivity and in the captivity, you're going to go. But if they kill you with the sword, then they're going to be killed with the sword. I used to think that that was the way of looking at it, but I think the first one actually is more likely to be correct. That's that the way I these, read it. Yeah, yeah. both of these are, depending on, your, on how you translate it, that both of these are exhortations of the church. Like, if you're going to captivity, you're going to go to captivity. If they're going to kill you with a sword, they're going to kill you with a sword. But don't worry about it, because guess what? Here is the patient endurance and the faith of the saints. And again, the conclusion of this introduction of this first beast is an exhortation to God's people. And that is, guys, we need to endure. So remember in chapter one, John introduced himself by saying, I, John, I'm your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation kingdom and patient endurance, which are in Christ Jesus. And there's that word patient endurance or perseverance. Here's the patient endurance and the faith of the saints. It's what we need to do because the dragon is waging war against God's people by means of this beast. Mm. And the good news, we know that revelation doesn't and you know the story doesn't end with right. god's people all being wiped out there's hope that's the whole idea of the introductory vision of jesus do not be afraid i'm the first and i'm the last i was dead and i'm alive forevermore like oh good news and revelation chapter 20 says the souls of those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of jesus and because of the word of god they came to life and reigned with christ ah mm-hmm. there we go good news so wrapping this up I actually don't want to ask this question because I, I don't like, I don't like your interpretation. I like popular interpretation better. That's way better. Cause I'm going to be raptured out of here. Don't have to deal with any of this. You don't want to hear what I have to say next. No, <laughs> I don't even want to have to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, well, we've already said it already to begin with, right? Yeah. Yeah. This passage is so critical. So when I first kind of, it's been 26 years now since I really started diving deep into the book of revelation and kind of left my dispensational popular understanding of the, of the world uh, behind. And you get to Revelation 13, you're like, oh, wait a minute. This one beast is embodying all empires in history. Hmm. And that click that happened, you begin to look at you know, the worldview. You have a different perspective on the way you look at the world now, right? All of a sudden now I begin to look at things differently because I I'm just going to say it if I can't, if you don't mind here, and, and you don't have to agree with me here or whatever, just I want you to process this. Mm-hmm. And that is, I was raised with, we're the good guys, they're the yeah. bad guys. And then that meant the United States is this good empire, it's this good entity. And I began realizing, wait a minute, the United States is nothing but a diff- another nation. And sure, maybe it's good in a lot of ways, but as soon as I realized it's nothing but another empire, I began processing and looking at things more critically. And for the last 25 years, and all of a sudden I'm going, it's, it's way more of a beast than I ever thought it was. And in the last four or five years, I've, I've been really thinking about this. And there's someone that you know, Vinny, that read my commentary, read the draft of my commentary before I sent it off to the publisher. And he got all finished with it. And he's like, I, I literally like it. I was like, okay, but who's the beast today? Mm. And I said, well, I didn't address that in the commentary because the commentary is talking about the text. Yeah. What does the text say? And who's the beast at the time John wrote mm-hmm. to whom John? The, the answer was, well, the beast is Rome. And that's what it was in John's day. But today the beast is, well, it's all empire. 
Mm-hmm. And we'll discuss this more as we proceed as well. We're going to bring some scholars on and kind of get their take on this also. But it's not just all empires. Today, what's interesting is, and I think we alluded to this before already, and that is there are corporations, multinational corporations that are actually as powerful or more powerful than some nations. Mm-hmm. You know, and I wrote some, some blogs on this a year ago that, that FIFA uh, is like the beast mm, because sure. the, the FIFA goes into Brazil and says, okay, we're going to have the World Cup in Brazil. Mm-hmm. But guess what? You're going to sell alcohol in your stadiums. Brazil mm-hmm. had actually outlawed alcohol because people were dying in soccer or football matches because oh, wow. of alcohol sales, they were getting drunk. And so Brazil as a country said, we're out, we're banning it. FIFA comes in and says, well, guess what? I think it's Heineken is like a major sponsor of FIFA and says, you're going to sell it. And they literally got Brazil to change the law hmm. to allow alcohol sales in the stadiums. So you see these national, these corporations or entities in FIFA in this instance, but multinational corporations that have more power. They go to the United States government and says, here's the deal. We're going to do this and you're going to let us do this. Or they go to mm-hmm. Ukraine and they say, mm-hmm. here's the deal. We're going to help you. We're going to give you all this assistance, but you're going to let this company build your electrical grid. You're going to let this company take care of the water. You're going to, and we're going to help you democratize, but our companies are going to be the ones that profit from this. Mm-hmm. And we hold power over Ukraine, something like that's going on in Ukraine. I, I don't know all the For details, sure. but there's no, there's no question about it. So one scholar uh, wrote it this way. says, the beast is not merely Rome. It's the inhuman, anti-human arrogance of empire, which has come to expression in Rome, but not only there. All who support the cultural religion in or out of church, however lamb-like they may appear, are agents of the beast. All propaganda that entices humanity to idolize human empire is an expression of this beastly power that wants to appear lamb-like. So I think we, I think that's where, where I would start there. So I have some more thoughts here, but you know, what are some of your takeaways at this point here? Well, I, w- I remember the first time I started engaging any kind of critical thought and it wasn't spawned on by revelation, but just the idea of saying, am I allowed to criticize or think, how do I even process this out loud? How, how should I remove myself from my own political system in a micro level and macro level, micro level, meaning like your, your political affiliation or who you register, who, you know, those party lines that we have, that's kind of the micro level, but then your macro level, just looking at the whole thing saying like, and I am American and it's better than this. Right. And, and right, you know, right. that, that kind yeah, of exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Once I was able to start pulling away from that that's when I was able to actually entertain this conversation because while I was in that, that just hardened codified way of thinking, I had to always find a way to make America fit with my theology. Mm. I wasn't truly free to actually look at these things because there's part of me that always wanted to say, yeah, but, and I want to defend it, uh, you know, in some kind of way it, it's in the same way as a parent, you love your kid and you might hold them accountable for something, but if someone else is criticizing, you're always going to want to step in and want to mm. defend them, you know? And, and it was like the same thing was happening. It just, the way I viewed my own country. And it, it it's not that I'm apolitical or I'm, you know, a communist or anything like that. Like I still have thoughts on politics. I still have, right, right. Convictions. but it was, it was, I was able, I had to pull away for a season and just say, okay, I'm okay. Not having a horse in the race, not having allegiance to a political party or an ideology and, and kind of almost becoming more pragmatic and ethics driven rather than hmm. having a conviction. So I'm just saying that for me, that's what it took to be able to actually engage what you're talking about and not always feeling like 
there's a defensive aspect of it right, right. Where it's like no but it can't be us we are the good guys rob right. haven't you seen the movies haven't you we know the stories we know the rhetoric and it's the same thing that you're going to be hearing if you're you're born and raised in any other country and you're a citizen of any other country in the world you're going to be hearing the same type of you're, you're going to be going to get the same kind of struggle mm -hmm. so this isn't like yeah. an anti-american thing this is saying as a christian who holds a passport to any country in the world this is what you come up against yeah. and we need to be okay putting our american passport in what that represents on a completely different bookshelf and saying no i'm just going to live here and if i need to go over there that's cool but i'm I'm always okay criticizing it and leaving that on a second bookshelf so i know yeah. for me it's it's just stepping back before you know just to be able to just remembering how i pro i've processed this like what it took in in the seriousness of this and how difficult it is and kind of reading a lot of c.s lewis he wrote a lot on this kind of idea because mm. he was writing in the 40s you know during the war mm-hmm and just the idea of what does it mean to be a patriot, but then also not confusing that the the love of of country with a different kind of you know love. He, yeah. he didn't use the word nationalism, but that's what he meant. So it's it's just that kind of struggle and, and always being okay to say nope. I will always side on the Jesus side of the equation and not have to say yeah, but and excuse my own country. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's two things I would add to this really quickly, and that would be one is there are brothers and sisters in Christ in those other nations. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we identify myself as an American, an American Christian, no, I'm a Christian who lives in America. Yeah. And that's my brother or sister in Christ who is a Christian who lives in Russia or a Christian who lives in North Korea or China or wherever else that may be. Uh, that's the first thing to think of. And the second thing is when we so identify ourselves with America or whatever country we might be in, and that's a good, then what do the nations that are on the other side of the spectrum who look at us as the oppressor, Yeah. what kind of witness are we giving to them? Because we're to, let's, let's take Iran as the most blatant example. And, and it's a, it's a evil regime. No yep. question at all. The Taliban in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. but they look at us as the oppressor. And then yeah. when we associate Christianity with America, then they go, oh, well, Christianity therefore is bad. And I, and I think that's the way the devil works. And that is, I'm going to harm their witness and damage their witness by getting them to ally themselves with a nation and not even be able to look at that nation critically. So mm. I think that's something significant. Yeah. So some of the application is just the starting point and allowing us to rethink how yes. we view the world, which yeah. is, this isn't the first time we've talked about this. We've talked about numerous of yeah. times, yeah. Uh, but this even goes back to when I, when I teach biblical interpretation classes, which I, I do, you know, annually. One of the weeks we talk about our pre-understandings or you could call it your presuppositions. What are the things that we bring to the table? And sometimes this is part of it. It's, it's explaining water to fish. How do you, how would you do that? Right. Uh, it, it's just the things that we live with. And, and I think one of them, especially in the evangelical American churches, the assumption that all the other empires are bad except for ours. Yeah. And, and recognizing that, no, we're part of Psalm two. We're, we're also raging against, we're one of the yeah. nations raging against God. Really quickly, as we finish up, just realizing the fact that even having this conversation means, oh boy, what are people going to think as they listen to this? Exactly. Right? How many just friends are we going to lose by this? Yeah. It mm -hmm. just tells you, in my opinion, how influential the beast has been yeah. and the empire has been in influencing the church because we can't even talk about these things without no. being, uh oh, well, whatever it might be. I remember the first time hearing a Christian brother talk about a different end times view and how he viewed revelation. And it mm -hmm. wasn't dispensational. I questioned if he actually was a Christian. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and I get there's people who hear us talk like this and we're not even talking about this sort of thing. We're talking about is something that's way more ingrained. So anyway, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a serious thing. All right. So next week we'll, uh, I guess we'll look at beast two, thing two, as yeah. you like to call them. Yeah, thing one and thing two. 
<laughs> nice. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoy the beasts as we ring them in with the new year. They've, they're on the naughty list. So they're getting coal, but we'll, we'll continue to read about them next week. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.